0: What is in me that says I? What is the nature of that consciousness of myself? What is my spirit made of? How am I psychologically constructed? We can ask the question in so many different ways, replace one term by another, we will always return to the same enigma. What is in me that produces the feeling of existing, but also rules my behavior, my thoughts and my emotions? What is this thing, which we could call the self, that enables me to think, to decide, to feel, that keeps all my experiences and gives me the innermost feeling of being myself, of having my own identity? In this lecture, we shall try to identify the models that answer these questions. We shall set out the model of the self, as presented by Bahram Elahi, a model which proposes both theoretical and practical answers. In order to understand the originality of this model, we shall put it into perspective thanks to two other conceptions of the self, to be described briefly here. The Models of the Self in Neuroscience and in Psychoanalysis Before broaching these two models, let us first analyze the fundamental question of what makes us specifically human, namely the perennial need to surpass ourselves, the impulse driving me to surpass myself particularly through ethical acts, or what essentially distinguishes me from an animal and urges me to become more human. This need expresses itself in various ways. Moral conscience, the ability to discriminate between good and evil, which motivates us to accomplish our moral duties. Faith in a creator which makes it possible to consider him an intelligent benevolent and generous force, a purely humane impulse that enables us to put ourselves in another person's place and respect his rights. What is the origin of this desire to surpass oneself? Of what use is it? We shall analyze the different models of the self in the light of the answers to these two questions. Let us begin with the model presented by neuroscience. From the point of view of neuroscience, our identity and our mental and psychological functioning constitute a material and tangible reality, a very complex one, but a reality that can be analyzed using a scientific approach. The main idea for researchers in neuroscience is that the center of reason and consciousness is located in the brain. More precisely, the brain is supposed to account for consciousness, the feeling of existing, our perceptions, our decisions, and our emotions. And the way our brain functions would also account for our need to surpass ourselves. Thus... According to this model, the self originates in the brain. Thanks to its several hundred billions of neural connections, the brain is supposed to act as a supercalculator ruling our entire inner life. This conception has the tremendous advantage of viewing the human spirit as an object that can be explored, observed and objectified, although still being very mysterious. But if the life of this consciousness depends on the survival of the brain as an organ, when cerebral death occurs, consciousness is bound to irremediably disappear in a few seconds, like a damaged computer processes that is irreparable. In relation to the questions asked in our introduction, this approach includes certain limits. Structurally, it is limited to the study of the brain as an organ. It aims at describing mere biological processes without attempting to give meaning to our inner life. It rules out any possibility of some consciousness that could be independent of the brain. It establishes little relationship between the functioning of the brain and the person's real-life experience. Consequently, it is difficult to use neuroscience as a tool for better self-knowledge or as a means to work on oneself. Let us now consider another way of studying human spirit stemming from the results of Freud's work in psychoanalysis. About a century ago Freud proposed a model describing how the psyche works. While he was experimenting, Freud too was convinced that, complex as it was, our mental and affective life originated entirely from the brain, which people were then only beginning to discover. Until his hypotheses were confirmed by the progress of science, he drew up a functional map of our inner life, in a metaphorical form, namely a model of the mind in three basic components which have more or less become part of today's everyday language. The id, the ego, and the superego. Let us introduce these components rapidly before going into further details. The id Freud considered it to be the source of all our impulses and the seat of our desires, and constantly active. The superego is the second component. It sets the moral limits to the impulses and desires that are contrary to our education and that don't comply with social and cultural constraints. The ego is the seat of reason and acts as the arbiter. Now let us go into further detail. The id, to begin with, entirely obeys the principle of pleasure, which means that in all situations it pursues its own pleasure without knowing any limits or prohibitions. The id is thus capable of producing all sorts of impulses that, as we shall see, will clash with the other components of the self. The superego, as mentioned before, sets prohibitions. It opposes certain overly annoying impulses coming from the id. Those raw impulses can then change direction and target another object, or else they can change form. They are then converted into symptoms such as anxiety, inexplicable acts or words, or they can suddenly resurface in our dreams. Conversely, if we didn't have a superego, we wouldn't have any inhibitions, and we would give way to all our impulses, even the most harmful ones. We could end up finding ourselves in some sticky situations. As for the ego, it follows the principle of realism, always taking reality into account and analyzing the situation before taking a decision. While taking into account the demands of the two other components, the ego can propose a compromise between the impulsive claims of the id, on one hand, and the moral censorship of the superego on the other. According to Freud, it is the ego that says I. Which doesn't mean that I can be reduced to this single component, for each one of my components has a part to play, and cannot be separated from the other two. Consequently, the self is an ego plus an id, plus a superego. According to Freud, the original substratum of the self is the id, which becomes differentiated into these three instances during childhood. The reason why Freud's threefold model has proved relevant to explain numerous pathological phenomena is above all because from the beginning Freud had gone on the revolutionary assumption that there is an unconscious part constituting a sort of territory that could be explored, but only in an indirect way. In any case, this territory is much larger than the conscious part, which is in proportion like the minuscule visible part of an iceberg, whose whole stretches down into the unfathomable depth of the ocean. Psychoanalysis was built around the observation of neuroses. Its main objective is the treatment of psychological disorders. While it leads to some self-knowledge that may enable us to live better, it does not provide one with a tool for self-transformation. It supposes that physical death is the end and thus refuses to consider the possibility that the self may survive. Moreover, Freud uses the notion of sublimation to explain what we called the need to surpass oneself. Sublimation consists in diverting psychic energy of libidinal origin towards another object, namely an aesthetic, ethical, or spiritual one. However, there is no coherent theory of sublimation in psychoanalytic thought and this does remain one of its shortcomings. Let us now examine the questions that remain unanswered. How can we create a model of the self which would not out of hand rule out the possibility that consciousness might be independent of the brain and might survive after death? Which would offer practical tools for self-knowledge, which would explain the need to surpass oneself and explain how this surpassing oneself works and how to use it. Bahram Elahi suggests such a model dealing mainly with the process of perfection of the self. That is to say, the possibility for every human being to become fully human and reach their perfection. Bahram Elahi Using the works of his father suggests completing the models of the self, which is found in psychoanalysis. Several essential differences can be noticed. To begin with, according to this model, my psyche has a double origin, the id arising from nature and similar to the psyche of primates, and on the other hand, the two other components, the ego and the superego, originating directly from the divine source. This latter part is precisely what should make us different from privates. This part of celestial origin actually amounts to our eternal identity and is meant to develop throughout earthly experience to reach perfection. The two parts merge together at the moment of birth to form the psyche. Second difference with the Freudian model. In this model, a fourth component, which also has a celestial origin, is added to the first three, the super-id. The super-id could account for the need to surpass oneself and for ethical and divine yearnings, as attested to by purely humane impulses or by faith in a creator. According to this model, one of the main functions of the super-id is to provide the energy and motivation necessary for the process of perfection. Another major difference is that in this model, the id, the inexhaustible source of impulsive behaviors, actually has two faces or modes of expression. A peaceful and useful mode, the worker self. An aggressive and harmful mode, the imperious self. When the id is in worker self mode, it attends to our legitimate needs, to our comfort and to our psychological and material fulfillment. But when it switches to the imperious self mode, the id prompts us to deliberately harm other people and thus basically ourselves too, as it stops us from becoming true human beings. Let us also note that, according to Bahram Elahi, struggling against the improper tendencies of the imperial self is actually the main exercise of the process of perfection. But above all, Bahram Elahi views this four-component psyche as the smallest part of a much larger whole that he calls the total ego. In his view, the total ego is almost entirely immersed in the unconscious, and only a tiny part of the psyche remains conscious. The conscious psyche would be the size of a pea placed on top of a watermelon, which would represent most of our unconscious. Thus, according to this model, the largest part of the self has a celestial origin, just like the ego, super-ego, and super-it components. This part would be the eternal memory of the self. Furthermore, according to this model, the process of perfection generally requires several lives, and Bahram Elahi calls this process ascending successive lives. The total ego retains the memory of the totality of past experiences represented in the diagram by so many psyches stored within the total ego. This total ego, resulting from the accumulation of the psyches of all our past lives, would thus constitute our true identity. A few questions have yet to be asked. First of all, What happens to the self when physical death occurs? The self leaves the earthly world and reaches a material world of more subtle nature that can be called the great beyond or the world of consciousness. After death, we regain consciousness of our total ego. Everything that was unconscious for us in our earthly life then becomes conscious. We recall all the experiences of our past life, as well as those of our preceding lives. Another question. What, then, is the use of the brain in this model? The brain is no longer the seat of consciousness and thought, because their origin is located elsewhere. It is held in the total ego, which is considered a real entity of subtle nature, but material just the same. The brain acts as the essential interface in the communication between the mind and the body, between my spiritual identity, what I really am on the one hand, and my biological identity on the other. In order to fully understand the originality of Bahram Elahi's model, we could compare the brain to a television set. As long as the TV is not tuned to the frequency transmitted by the antenna, it cannot pick up any signal, and therefore it cannot produce any images. As for the signal containing the images, it does not come from the TV set itself, but from a Distant transmitter. When the TV antenna is tuned to the proper frequency, the signal gets through and the TV acts as an interface between the transmitter and the viewer by converting the signal transmitted by the antenna into images visible on the screen. The brain is like a TV set, the signal comes from elsewhere from the total ego, and it doesn't need the brain to continue to be active. When the TV set is unplugged or out of order, there are no more images on the screen. Yet, the transmitter keeps transmitting signals. Well, it's the same for the brain. When the brain is dead, the total ego is still active. It's even eternal. If we didn't know how television works, we could wrongly conclude that the images originate from the TV set itself. In the same way, to return to our subject, we could think that thought and consciousness originate from the brain. Now to conclude, what should we remember about the model of the self as set out by Bahram Elahi? In this model, The self is made up of four components integrated to form the total ego. This model gives us the conceptual tools needed to begin our practice towards perfection. It accounts for the need to surpass ourselves, which comes from our celestial origin. This need, if properly cultivated, is what provides us with the energy and motivation Necessary for the process of perfection These three final points will be broached and studied in future lectures on the process of perfection